This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode has three segments. First, we have a war bond pitch from General Dwight Eisenhower, urging Americans at home to buy bonds to support the war effort. First broadcast this week in 1943. Then, from October 28, 1943, we have a group of 350 WACs taking the oath of enlistment for the 3rd Service Command, headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. The WACs, or Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, was a women's branch of the U.S. Army, founded in 1942. WACs would serve in a number of non-combat roles during and after the war. Finally, we have British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's speech of October 28, 1943, on the rebuilding of the House of Commons, which had been hit by German bombs in 1941. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast and find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. First, let me say that it would be difficult to exaggerate the influence of our successful war loan drives on the men and women under my command. This is a hard war, a bitter, bloody war. Those who are where the guns are firing and the bombs dropping, a tough, vicious, treacherous enemy. Make no mistake, it will be a long, long way to final victory, and the road will continue to be rough. Our men know it. They are ready for it. But they want to be always sure, above all else, that the home front stands firmly behind them. They want to know that the folks at home keenly realize that we are all in this together, fighting for our right to lead a free existence. This war will continue to take everything that each of our soldiers has. And we know, every general knows, that the most important part of any soldier's equipment is his fighting spirit. In a final analysis, this spirit is equally as important as guns and ammunition. Because no general can win a battle, even with the best of equipment, if his men are not determined and confident. And they are completely confident only when they feel they are being back to the limit by the folks back. That is why overwhelming success in war loan drives is vitally important for the war over here. A successful war loan drive gives renewed proof to the men fighting in the mud along the Falterna River, to the man struggling every inch of the way toward Rome, to the man who never forgets that he is living in constant danger of his life, that his fellow citizens back home have confidence in his ability to bring freedom back to the world, and are doing their full part to perpetuate the kind of America that we want. The bare truth is that the man in the front lines believes it to be the patriotic obligation of the people back home to support the war until it hurts. They expect you to do your duty. You have not let them down. 
I know you never will. My confidence in you is equal to that I have in the victors of Galveston, of Hill 609, of Bezazet, of Messina, Salerno, and Naples. I believe in you as I do in my airmen that bomb the enemy by day and by night. And as I believe in our gallant seamen that carry our troops, protect our convoys, and assist the army in assaulting the enemy's strongholds. Yet I think my men would like to have me be brutally honest with you and tell you that sometimes in the past they have worried about how deeply you feel for war. They know it is your war as much as it is theirs. And they know how important it is to have you all out, producing war materials to the limit and buying bonds to the limit. It reassures them just how it is necessary to turn over to your government these billions upon billions of dollars. To keep faith with the fighting man, you will keep it up. Keep it up until those who are fighting at the front, and all of you working and striving at home, shall, as one indestructible team, have won the final battle, and tyranny and oppression have been blasted from the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, Major Jack B. Don, officer in charge of WAC recruiting for the 3rd Service Command, will now administer the oath of enlistment to the 350 new WAC recruits. Major Don. Will you all please rise and raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I, a citizen of the United States, hereby acknowledge to have voluntarily enlisted this 28th day of October, 1943, in the Women's Army Corps, Army of the United States of America. For the period of the duration of the war plus six months. Under the conditions prescribed by law. Unless sooner discharged by proper authority. And I also agree to accept from the United States such bounty, pay, rations, and clothing. As are or may be established by law. And I do solemnly swear that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the United States of America. That I will serve them honestly and faithfully against all their enemies whomsoever. And that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States. And the orders of the officers appointed over me. According to the rules and articles of war. So help me God. Be seated. On the night of the 10th of May, 1941, 
with one of the last bombs of the last serious raid, our House of Commons was destroyed by the violence of the enemy. And we have now to consider whether we should build it up again, and how, and when. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. Having dwelt and served for more than 40 years in the late chamber, and having derived very great pleasure and advantage therefrom, I naturally should like to see it restored in all essentials to its old form, convenience, and dignity. I believe that will be the opinion of the great majority of its members. It is certainly the opinion of His Majesty's Government, and we propose to support this resolution that a select committee be appointed to consider and report upon the plans for rebuilding the new house to the best of our ability. There are two main characteristics of the House of Commons which will command the approval and support of reflective and experienced members. They will, I have no doubt, sound odd to foreign ears. The first is that its shape should be oblong and not semicircular. Here is a very potent factor in our political life. The semicircular assembly, which appeals to political theorists, enables every individual or every group to move round the center, adopting various shades of pink according as the weather changes. I am a convinced supporter of the party system in preference to the group system. I have seen many earnest and ardent parliaments destroyed by the group system. The party system is much favored by the oblong form of chamber. It is easy for an individual to move through those insensible gradations from left to right, but the act of crossing the floor is one which requires serious consideration. I am well informed on this matter, for I have accomplished that difficult process not only once, but twice. Logic is a poor guide compared with custom. Logic which has created in so many countries semicircular assemblies with buildings that give to every member not only a seat to sit in, but often a desk to write at, with a lid to bang, has proved fatal to the parliamentary government as we know it here, in its home, and in the land of its birth. The second characteristic of a chamber formed on the lines of the House of Commons is that it should not be big enough to contain all its members at once without overcrowding, and that there should be no question of every member having a separate seat reserved for him. The reason for this has long been a puzzle to uninstructed outsiders and has frequently excited the curiosity and even the criticism of new members. Yet it is not so difficult to understand if you look at it from a practical point of view. If the House is big enough to contain all its members, nine-tenths of its debates will be conducted in the depressing atmosphere of an almost empty or half-empty chamber. The essence of good House of Commons speaking is the conversational style the facility for quick, informal interruptions and interchanges. Harangues from a rostrum would be a bad substitute for the conversational style in which so much of our business is done. But the conversational style requires a fairly small space, and there should be on great occasions a sense of crowd and urgency. There should be a sense of the importance of much that is said 
a sense that great matters are being decided there and then by the House. We attach immense importance to the survival of parliamentary democracy. In this country, this is one of our war aims. We wish to see our Parliament a strong, easy, flexible instrument of free debate. For this purpose, a small chamber and a sense of intimacy are indispensable. It is notable that the Parliament for the British Commonwealth have to a very large extent reproduced our parliamentary institutions in their form as well as in their spirit, even to the chair in which the speakers of the different assemblies sit. We do not seek to impose our ideas on others. We make no invidious criticism to other nations. All the same, we hold nonetheless tenaciously to them ourselves. The vitality and authority of the House of Commons and its hold upon an electorate based upon universal suffrage, depend to no small extent upon its episodes and great moments, even upon its scenes and rows, which, as everybody will agree, are better conducted at close quarters. Destroy that hold which Parliament has upon the public mind and has preserved through all these changing, turbulent times, and the living organism of the House of Commons will be greatly impaired. You may have a machine but the House of Commons is much more than a machine. It had earned and captured and held through long generations the imagination and respect of the British nation. It is not free from shortcomings. They mark all human institutions. Nevertheless, I submit to what is probably a not unfriendly audience on that subject that our House has proved itself capable of adapting itself to every change which the swift pace of modern life has brought upon us. It has a collective personality which enjoys the regard of the public and which imposes itself upon the conduct not only of individual members but of parties. It has a code of its own which everyone knows and it has means of its own of enforcing those manners and habits which have grown up and have been found to be an essential part of our parliamentary life. The House of Commons has lifted our affairs above the mechanical sphere into the human sphere. It thrives on criticism. It is perfectly impervious to newspaper abuse or taunts from any quarter. And it is capable of digesting almost anything or almost any body of gentlemen, whatever be the views with which they arrive. There is no situation to which it cannot address itself with vigor and ingenuity. It is the citadel of British liberty. It is the foundation of our laws. Its traditions and its privileges are as lively today as when it broke the arbitrary power of the crown and substituted that constitutional monarchy under which we have enjoyed so many blessings. In this war, the House of Commons has proved itself to be a rock upon which an administration, without losing the confidence of the House, has been able to confront the most terrible emergencies. The House has shown itself able to face the possibility of national destruction with classical composure. It can change governments and has changed them by heat of passion. It can sustain governments in long, adverse, disappointing struggles through many dark, gray months and even years until the sun comes out again. Now, I do not know how else this country can be governed than by the House of Commons playing its part in all its broad freedom in British public life. We have learned with these so recently confirmed facts around us and before us 
not to alter improvidently the physical structures which have enabled so remarkable an organism to carry on its work of banning dictatorships within this island and pursuing and beating into ruins all dictators who have molested us from outside. His Majesty's government are most anxious and are indeed resolved to ask the House to adhere firmly in principle to the structure and characteristics of the House of Commons we have known. And I do not doubt that is the wish of the great majority of members in this, the second longest Parliament of our history. I am bound to say that I rank the House of Commons, the most powerful assembly in the whole world, at least as important as a fortification or a battleship, even in time of war. Politics may be very fierce and violent in the after-war days. We may have all the changes in personnel following up in a general election. We shall certainly have an immense press of business and very likely of stormy controversy. We must have a good, well-tried and convenient place in which to do our work. The House owes it to itself, it owes it to the nation, to make sure that there is no gap, no awkward, injurious hiatus in the continuity of our parliamentary life. I am today only expressing the views of the government, but if the House sets up the committee, and in a few months' time the committee give us their report, we shall be able to take decisions together on the whole matter and not be caught at a disadvantage in what must inevitably be a time of particular stress and crisis at the end of the war from a parliamentary point of view. Therefore I ask that this committee should be set up and I feel sure that it will be able to make a good plan of action, leaving the necessary latitude to the government as to the time when this action can be taken and the speed at which it can be carried into effect, having regard to the prime exigencies of the war. We owe, Mr. Speaker, a great debt to the House of Lords for having placed at our disposal this spacious, splendid hall. We have already expressed in formal resolution our thanks to them. We do not wish to outstay our welcome. We have been greatly convenienced by our sojourn on these red benches and under this gilded, ornamented, statue-bedecked roof. I express my gratitude and my appreciation of what we have received and enjoyed. But, mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. <laughs>